Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today we're speaking with Monty Warden, an Austin-based musician and songwriter who is a two-time member of the Texas Music Hall of Fame. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So for our listeners, can you introduce who you are and what you do? Yes, uh, my name is Monty Warden. I am a songwriter and a recording artist, performer. I've lived in Austin since I was four months old, and uh, my family's lived in Texas since 1831 and in the Austin area since 1838 when it was still Waterloo. So today we'll be talking about both your music career and your rich family history here in Texas. So starting with the career, it seems that you had a pretty good start with being a teenager and getting some notable awards. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Hannah. I, uh, I started playing when I was about 12 years old, playing the guitar when I was about 12 years old. And it was primarily I was, you know, was and am skinny. And, and uh, so I was kind of too frail for to, to make a... A lasting impression in sports <laughs> so, so I figured if there was any way I was going to meet chicks it would have to be playing the guitar because I, I, I remember specifically seeing like on American Bandstand and stuff that the girls liked the guys that played guitar so I went oh I'll try that and because girls also scared the hell out of me um, I noticed well if I played I probably wouldn't have to talk to them either and that was an extra bonus so uh, I tried that and um, though it didn't work out Right away with the girls, I noticed right away I was able to, to pick pretty well. And uh, for some reason or another, I was just, uh, God blessed me with the gift of I've always been able to write songs people wanted to hear. And, uh, and, so I, and I've always been interested in songwriters. Nobody in my family was in the music business or anything. But uh, like when I'd go look at a record when I was little, I would for some reason go look at say who the songwriter was. Uh, and I, would, I was always very interested in the creation of songs. Anyhow, started picking a little bit. When I was about 14, I started playing with some friends of mine from school, and then we were doing pretty well. And then when I was 15, uh, I, I started this band called Woe Trigger. It was a rockabilly group. Uh, I was on rhythm guitar. Uh, another buddy was on upright bass. Another buddy was on lead guitar. So it was like the exact uh, makeup of Elvis Presley's first group, Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, or Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. So primarily a, a rockabilly group, but really heavily in country. And right away, we got this huge following. And, and uh, Margaret Moser over at the Austin Chronicle was a, a huge early supporter. And here at the, the Statesman, uh, Ed Ward, who was a tough nut. And I mean, uh, he didn't like anything, <laughs> but he liked our group. So... 
we we got uh, noticed. We got popular right away, and uh, like at the, I think it was the, I don't know, third, second or third, maybe fourth Austin Music Awards. We won Best New Band, and and uh, that was a, a pretty prominent deal for Austin, you know, local, and uh, and we were able to tour a little bit around Texas, and I just kind of got my name known a little bit, and and uh, right away people like. Uh, Heroes of mine, people with, that that I looked up to a great deal, like Joe Ely and the guys in the group Rank and File, and uh, they were telling my folks and, and telling me that I, could, I was probably good enough to, uh, I, I was talented enough to have a career in music. Whether or not that happened, that's up to God and fate and other things. But uh, at least I had the talent for it, so I, it was something I really wanted to pursue. And and it really, it's amazing. I mean, it is. Uh, it's the only job I've ever wanted and the only job I've ever had. Really blessed. So then you had another band a little while after. The Wagoneers. The Wagoneers. There you go. The Wagoneers. Uh, yeah, when I was about, uh, I see, Woe Trigger. I had Woe Trigger from the time I was like 15 to 17. And uh, because the, the group didn't have a drummer, and uh, I personally found it musically limiting it it is not limited i don't think any music is limiting but i i personally did at the time i didn't yet know i could actually write anything i wanted to for the group except <laughs> drum solos or something so uh when i was about 17 i broke the group up and i started just concentrating on my songwriting and and i wanted to uh i i, I figured i was good enough to like write hit songs but i didn't yet know how you write a hit song or, or what what the process would be and really there really isn't a process either you're good enough or you're not but I, I i wanted to get better as a songwriter so when i was about 17 i started going up to nashville and uh and just kind of hanging out with the writers and and you have to put it contemporaneous to 1984 uh a young country act then was in their 40s so seeing a teenager coming up from austin wanting to talk to the songwriters almost like i was a it was a i was a novelty but People like Guy, like Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and Steve Earle, those guys, they were up in Nashville at the time, uh, knew my songs were good. They weren't yet great, but they knew they were good. And so uh, I started getting noticed a little bit. And uh, then when I was uh, 18, I'd made just enough noise here in Austin to, uh, to get a meeting with, with a couple of execs up there in Nashville. And I was meeting with this guy. His name was Roger Sovine. He was the head of BMI, Artist Publisher Relations, there in Nashville or worldwide, but the office was in Nashville. And uh, I played him a couple, three, four songs, and he said, he said, son, I'm going to tell you something, and it's the worst thing I can tell a songwriter, and that's your songs are real good. He said, if your songs were great, I'd get on the phone here and help, help you get a publishing deal. If your songs are terrible, I'd tell you, go back home to Texas, do something else, but I can't tell you either one. He said, but if you go back home and you write a great song, I don't care if it takes you six months, six years, I'll meet with you again. And if I think it's a great song, I'll help you. Uh, I'll help open some doors for you. So anyway, uh, I went back home. You know, I wasn't discouraged. I was too young to think that was discouraging. And because uh, uh, and I was 18, yeah, I didn't know anything. You know, you don't, no 18-year-old knows anything. And, but I did know my Texas history, and I love my Texas history. And as I said, I'm seventh-generation Texan. And for me, uh, there had not yet been... Uh, a song written about the Battle of the Alamo that was historically accurate. There had been hundreds of ba songs about the Alamo, and it always just kind of, as a, just a history buff, kind of just pissed me off where 
why would the story's great and it's easy to tell the truth and why wouldn't they do that so i set about to write about a, a historically accurate song about the alamo and right away it was so much better than anything i had previously written and uh and so uh after i got it polished up a little bit this was maybe three months later i called mr sovine reintroduced myself he remembered me and i said i've got a great song i think and he said well let me just tell you son I'm going to meet with you one more time. If, it's, if you think it's a great song and I don't, then that just tells me where you are at judging your own songs. So if you feel it's great, I will meet with you. So it's kind of telling me, don't waste my fucking time if you're not really good, you know. And so I went up there and I picked in this song. And just as the last chord rang out, there was just this silence uh, in the room. And it was this big cavernous office. And I just went, oh, shit. Maybe I blew it here. And he said... Well, son, that's a great song. That is a great song. He said, uh, I remember he specifically said, I don't know if it's a hit song, but it's a great song. And I will help you uh, open some, I'll help open some doors for you. And sure enough, uh, within six months of writing that song, I was 18. I had my very first publishing deal. And then came back home and I started the Wagoneers. And the Wagoneers were, uh, I was the youngest. I was uh, 19 by then. Um guitar player was 22 bass player was 24 i think the drummer was 27 but anyway even the, the oldest cat at 27 we were an extraordinarily young country group for 1986 1987 and uh we wrote, we did all the material i wrote so it was very unusual for a country act then now it's it's almost required but back then it was all, there were almost no all original material country artists i, I could think i can think of no other actually at the time so we got a lot of attention we were young good looking and it was just these kids are playing real traditional country music so it's uh march of 87 now and uh, i'm 19 and we picked the first south by southwest and it was you know it was real small now i think it was like maybe 60 bands or something and anyhow uh rolling stone wrote about us and we got all this attention and we were the, and nobody won. Nobody knew it was the Wagoneers. Nobody knew it was South by Southwest. It was just, you know, just this music festival. But we were, I guess still are, but we were the first group to get a major label recording deal out of South by Southwest. So South by Southwest certainly put, helped put us on the map, but we kind of helped put them on the map too. So we were signed to A&M Records and uh, that, out, out of Los Angeles, and that was a, a wonderful thing for us because they were a rock and roll label. They'd only had three country acts. They'd signed Waylon Jennings in the 60s and Graham Parsons in the 70s and then the Wagoneers in the 80s. <laughs> After the Wagoneers, they were all done <laughs> trying to sign country acts. But, uh, but it was cool because all three of those acts, mine included, uh, were uh, artistic successes and certainly critical successes but weren't commercially successful. But the great thing was the label left all three of us and most, and just about all the acts on A and M, you were just <laughs> you were just left alone to do whatever in the hell you wanted. And and really, that's what a record label ought to do: find a great talented act and just leave them the fuck alone. And that's what they did with us. And so the records were received very well. And and you know, I got to, yeah, you know, nineteen, twenty years old, getting to tour the world. And and it was a, it was a really great start to what has just been a. Amazing 30-plus-year career, you know. 
There was a bit of time where the Wagoneers took a bit of a break, right? No, we, we broke up because we couldn't fucking stand each other. But you oh call God. it whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> How, about, about 20 years. Would you be able to elaborate on that of like kind of the – because I think people like – I'm thinking of Daisy Jones and the Six, that like Amazon Prime show about right. like band and the tensions between band members. Like, well, yeah, it, it you know it was the, the uh, you know the Wagoneers. We we reunited in let's see, we broke up in like maybe ninety two, I guess that sounds right. We're gonna say ninety two because you know who's gonna fact check that anyway? <laughs> but anyway, we'll say ninety two, and I started uh, my solo recording career, which was. Uh, very successful, but then much more importantly, uh, about 96 or 7, I started concentrating on um, – I had had a bunch of uh, – an enormous amount of critical success and critically acclaimed and and critics loved me. I made great records, all of that, but I had no commercial success. My, my career had been mostly about uh, potential and unrealized uh, – Success, and I didn't like that. And but it was true, and I was starting to read it in books. Like the Wagoneers were starting to appear in some books, and it was just that uh, we were, you know, critical favorites and underground success. But I, I as a songwriter, I, I wanted everybody to know my songs, you know, and, and to sell millions of records as a songwriter. So I realized probably the best way to do that would not be in one of my own projects because my Music tends to be just a little bit, little bit different, uh, left to center maybe. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'd have more success with mainstream country acts recording my stuff and have my stuff in movies and commercials. And, and, and I knew my songs were good enough for that. They just, it just had not yet happened. Anyway, so started concentrating on that. And then uh, Patty Loveless recorded my songs and George Jones and Merle Haggard and then Travis Tritt record was I was on a million selling album of his. Patty Loveless, I was on a gold record of hers. It's platinum now. And then had a huge hit with George Strait. So all of that, uh, all of my songwriting dreams were fulfilled with that. And I and I knew it was like it was so frustrating for me in the in the nineties, in the early nineties. I was like, damn it the hell. I know these songs are great and I know these are hit songs, but you I just kind of got perceived as some cool cat from Austin and not really commercially viable. And it's if if that's the narrative, the only way to change the narrative is to change the narrative. So that's what I thought about to do. But in regards to the Wagoneers, uh, we uh, when we broke up in in ninety one or ninety two, uh, it was there just been a, a a lot of hard feelings. And and of all the bands uh, in that I've studied throughout history and I'm a huge rock and roll history buff country music history buff I'm just a history buff in general the only band of which I'm aware that uh, I know of no other band I should say I know of no other band that had the dynamic that the Wagoneers did and that's many bands have the dynamic where there's one guy that's obviously the guy that he's got all the charisma he's the singer he writes all the songs the band's his vision countless bands uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, uh, the Credence, uh, here closer to home, Blue October, Old 97s with Rhett Miller. And, and so, so many acts have the guy. But there is no other group that I know of in history where the guy was also so much younger than the other guys. And so, uh, 
you know, drummer's like, you know, eight years older than I am, and but these are my songs. But, in you know, in his perspective, here's this kid telling me what to do and what to play. And from my perspective, it's like I'm writing these fucking songs. This guy wouldn't be on a major label without my songs. I would be on a major label. with. It's not like his drumming or bass playing is anything that's going to stop the world. You're here because of me. And that sounds hard and that sounds harsh. But uh, I invite you to prove me wrong. And, and there was none of that. So the dynamic of the band was as such there was just always this tension of uh, – you know, why does everybody say it's mine? Yeah, Monty's band. Why, you, know, you know, the band would always bitch. Why, why do they say it's Monty's band? And from my perspective, it's like, what else are they going to do? Uh, but one time I had this, in, I had this amazing uh, experience with this cat named Bruce Brody. And he was in uh, the Patti Smith group, and he was in Lone Justice, and he played keyboards for U2. But he's, he's always been a side guy. He's always been a sad, side man. And he said, keep in mind... The guys in your band have never seen your band. And I go, that's such a great fucking perspective because that had never occurred to me. So when everybody goes, hey, here's the main one and let's talk to the main one and I want my picture made with that guy. And also, when that happens in a band, the guys don't get mad at the fans that the fans only want to talk to them, uh, want to talk to me. They get mad at me, which was, and that is true of any band that has the absolute overt no questions asked leader of the band uh, sometimes it is only the band members that don't realize that so anyway so when we got back together everybody's you know 20 25 years older much more mature and what had happened over the subsequent couple decades was I had gone on to sell millions of records as a songwriter and continued to record for major labels as a solo artist. So the dynamic was uh, much different because everybody's role was much better defined than it was when I was 18 when we had our first rehearsal and these guys were grown men in their mid-20s. And, and part of that dynamic also never really went away because part, part of that was those guys only saw me as the teenager in my living room and they as grown men. But I will say this. That tension adds to the magic of the music sometimes. Sometimes you need that. And, and uh, as, as pain in the ass as it might be, you know, backstage or something, it, there, there is no substitute for whatever the magic is. You know, you just, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a, a band or a TV show cast or just a dynamic in the office. It is always a mistake to fuck with the mojo. Whatever that mo- – you may not like that it's the mojo, but if it's there and it's special, I, I think you'd leave it the fuck alone. Arguably, one of your biggest successes was the song that you co-wrote with George Strait. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, I co-wrote it with Bruce Robinson, but uh, George Strait recorded it. It was uh, – uh, I wrote this song uh, desperately in – I was – let's see, maybe 96, I think. I was going through uh, an ex- – a very surprising divorce. Well, it was surprising for me. My ex-wife and her boyfriend had been cooking it up for a while, but, but it was surprising to me. So uh, uh, and I was just heartbroken, and I was drinking a whole bunch and taking a bunch of pills and just screwing everything that moved. I was just – something needed – something was going to make me feel better, damn it. 
and nothing was making me feel better, which is so odd because usually you can. Substances and casual sex usually lead to mental stability. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so I was just a poor, miserable bastard. And, uh, and I'd go over to uh, Bruce and Kelly. Bruce Robinson and Kelly Willis were uh, married at the time. And I'd go over to their house, and I would just cry and bitch and moan and whine, you know. And, and uh, literally one day I was over at their house, and Bruce said, if you're going to be this miserable, the least we could do is make this shit rhyme. Those were his exact words. And so we wrote this song desperately. And uh, we knew it was good. Like the morning we wrote it, we knew it was good. And so uh, for some reason, Bruce and I used to write a whole lot together. Uh, we, this was like so good. Like we went to go play it for Kelly. And she is a, uh, a harsh critic. And she throws around compliments like they're manhole covers. And we picked that for her. She said, guys, that's really great, which is fantastic. So anyway, so we just had this song. We didn't have anything, you know, nothing to do with it. You know, I, I didn't have a record deal. Bruce didn't have a record deal. But he started picking it live at his shows. And then fast forward uh, six years, maybe, 2002. Yeah, six years. And uh, I'm happily married, remarried. I've met the love of my life, one of those great things where – if my ex-wife hadn't have left me, I never would have been divorced. I never would have left that woman and never would have gotten divorced, never would have met the love of my life, Brandy. And Brandy's third-generation music business, very, very successful songwriting family. She was in uh, the A&R department at Decca Records when we met, and she started, had just started this publishing company. And this, you know, independent woman, Cherokee Indian, just a badass motherfucker starting a publishing deal. A publishing company. So we're out having supper with Kelly at uh, uh, Red Lobster on South Lamar, and Brandy goes, uh, "How many times?" I got a stupid question. How many times has desperately been pitched to George Strait? And Bruce and I just looked at each other, and we both went, "Well, we got a stupider answer. How about none?" And Brandy went, "There's, there's no way that song's not been pitched to George. It's perfect for him." And you know, uh, for Bruce and me. We don't think about somebody like George Strait recording our songs because George Strait's George Strait. He's the king of country music. Why would he record our songs, you know? So Brandy said, I'm going to send it up there to him because uh, the label uh, with whom she worked, Decca, was part of MCA and George was on MCA Nashville. So Brandy could get it to George. We, that, you know, we couldn't make George record it, but we knew he would hear it, you know, and that's all you can ask for. And so Brandy uh, sent it up to George uh, I want to say it was FedEx because you still had to send a, a CD. You couldn't send an MP3. Uh, so we uh, we sent it up. We put it in FedEx like Wednesday, Thursday. It got to George, and right away the label called. Uh, like like by that afternoon, and usually it would be <laughs> what we were used to is they would call saying your CD doesn't work or you know who the hell is this or something like that. But you know it was just odd that they would call immediately and they went. Uh, George heard your song, and uh, he loves it, and he wants to put it on hold. And a hold means you promise not to send it somewhere else, and that artist promises to look real closely at it. And a hold doesn't mean anything, but it is the first step in a long process to get a song cut. So it was exciting, you know. And so, so that whole weekend, we got to dream about having a George Strait cut and what that would mean and what that would mean for me as a songwriter, what that would mean for Brandy as a publisher, 
what that would mean for me and Bruce's friends, you know, getting to have a George Strait recording, just an album cut, you know. And then uh, on Tuesday morning, I, I thought it was Monday, but I've been corrected. It was on that next Tuesday morning about, about noon, about 11, we see that MCA Nashville comes up on caller ID, uh, 615. And uh, Brandy just come out of the shower, and she had her hair up in a towel, you know. And uh, she saw the, the thing, and it was like, we knew we were getting the call saying, we're letting your hold go. Because it was early in the day, and usually that's how they say, thank you, we appreciate you, but uh, we're going to record something else. You know? so it's, and so Brandy said, and we'd, we'd all spent whole, all weekend just dreaming these big dreams. You know? And so uh, uh, Brandy said, you take the call. So I picked up the phone and said, hello, at the MCA Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I'm just going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, okay, thank you. Hung up the phone, and Brandy went, what did they say? And I went, baby, they said, George recorded our song at 10 o'clock this morning. And literally, she turned around and threw up in the sink. <laughs> like any hard-nosed oh businesswoman would. And, uh, it, and we just went, oh. And the thing about George that, uh, that you have to put in perspective is, George Strait does not overcut. Like so many acts will overcut. They'll cut 20 songs and 10 will go on an album. If George cut 10 songs, they all, all 10 went on the record. If he cut 12, all 12 went on the record. So we knew we were on a George Strait album. And that was huge. And that was, that was so big for me because at the time, you got to remember, this is before Bruce had had so much success as a songwriter, before I'd had so much success as a songwriter. And this is before uh, other artists from... Texas, but primarily Austin. Austin had this stigma in Nashville of something they called, and it was a derogatory term. Like, if you read it, it seems pretty cool, but it, it was a derogatory term. It was, their, their phrase was, Austin cool. And that's exactly how they said it. Austin cool. Man, you're Austin cool. And what that meant was, we don't get what you do. We get it's good, but it ain't ever going to sell any records. And that's also kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy because they'll, they won't Put your songs on the records that sell. Now, I'll tell you a story about that in just a second. But, but anyway, and desperately kind of helped break that, that spell, that, that mold, because it was, it was George Strait. It wasn't just somebody having a hit off an Austin writer. It was the fucking king of country music having a hit off of two Austin writers. So anyway, so album came out, and a year and a half later, you know, because uh, George's singles last about six months, about a year and a half later, it was the last single off that album, and it was, it was an enormous hit. And it wasn't just a, like it was, it was weird. It, that song, even for George, was a huge hit. Uh, you know, most songs are on the charts about six months. The, you know, th three climbing and three falling. You know, and uh, Desperately was on the charts ten months. It was in the top ten three months, which is just unheard of. But it just kept getting played and kept getting played and, but anyway so it changed my life forever gave me a seat at the grown-ups table it's been on four four different george Strait million selling packages the album it was on and a couple three different uh compilations and greatest hits packages and it desperately uh, changed my life changed bruce's life and but uh, I'll tell you one cool uh, Austin cool, <laughs> cool story. This is before that. George George didn't give me my first platinum record. Didn't earn me my first platinum record, I should say. Uh, Travis Tritt did. 
Uh, and, uh, and I love Travis Tritt singing. He's just a brilliant, brilliant artist. But uh, he liked this song of mine called I Wish I Was Wrong, another divorce song uh, that, uh, that we kind of wrote it with him in mind. And, and as a songwriter, Hannah, you, that's not really good business sense to write specifically for one artist because then if they pass, you're fucked, you know. But we went, this sounds like it could be a Travis Tritt record. So we're going we're gonna to play it for Travis. We're going to write it for Travis. And if he digs it, it's perfect. That's the only time I've ever successfully <laughs> done that. I've, I used to do it all the time, and I've certainly learned not to since. Anyway, so Travis dug this song. And he was going up to, he had 16 songs uh, to put on a 12-song record. And he went up to his label, Sony Nashville. Uh, and they were going to cull down from 16 to 12. So four songs weren't going to make it. And Yonder comes, I wish I was wrong's turn. And it was the first time anybody at the label had seen a lyric sheet. Now, a lyric sheet lists the songwriters on it. See, it says Monty Ward and Tommy Connors, my, my co-writer. And there was a cat there at the label, well, you know, because <laughs> it's show business. He was a friend of mine. He really was, this cat named Blake Chansey. And Blake didn't know it was my song, and he saw my name on it. So they listened to the demo, of, you know, this guy that we hired, this guy that sounded like Travis, you know, and he, and he played it. And everybody's like, yeah, I love the song, love the song, you know. But Blake was the, the boss of the label. He was the head of the label at the time. And he said, let me ask you this. Is this song too Austin for Travis and Tripp? You know, and I do not know the man. Uh, I've met him a couple times, and I owe him so much. But but uh, by two people that were at that label, uh, at that meeting, one at the label, one in his management team, told me the exact same story. And Tritt looked at, at Blake and said, well, I don't know what the fuck that means, but I'm going to record this song. And he did, and that sold two million records. And, and it, you know, the wild thing about that is, Travis stood up for me. I don't know if he was just pissed at the guy at the label and just wanted to, you know, record the song despite him. Or is it just some innocuous phrase that, is this song too Austin? Nobody knows what the fuck that means. It's just kind of a way to get out of recording or taking a stand for something. Anyhow, so Travis cut the song, and, and the wild thing about it was uh, it had taken me, how long have I been doing this? 18 years to earn my first platinum record and it took me six months to earn my second one because once you've done it once it's a little easier you know the, once once you're on a, a a number one record the labels and the artists and their management their a and r look at your songwriting differently because it's you know but in their defense why the fuck would you record some a song with somebody that hadn't been on a hit record because then if it flops, you took this chance, and now you're going to get fired. So there's a reason why people keep recording the same songwriter's materials. One, the, the songs are great, and two, it it's safer, you know. So anyway, there's two stories about being a writer from Austin. <laughs> Another big accomplishment of yours is that you are a two-time member of the Texas Music Hall of Fame. Is yes, that correct? that is correct. The first time it happened... Uh, I was inducted as a solo act, and because I'm, you know, my career with the Wagoneers, and as a solo artist, and as a songwriter, and then when the Wagoneers, uh, the Wagoneers reunited actually in 2012, I guess that's right, uh, for our induction into the Hall of Fame, 
and uh and it was kind of neat because for me anyway um you know the wagoneers were like in the, the late 80s and then when we broke up uh and maybe because we were only together four years or something i don't know but um we uh for me anyway i thought well god we were the first we our recordings predate Jim Lauderdale and the Mavericks and Buddy Miller and Kelly Willis and Dale Watson and and uh, derailers and all these you know Charlie Robinson Bruce Robinson all these Texas music guys Pat Green Jack Ingram we predated all of those guys we made our records first and we we laid down that that foundation of kind of left to center cool country acts that were younger you know and but we were completely as I saw it. Uh, given no credit or brushed aside or not even talked about but but i have to say this not in like a i'm not whining about it also there had not been enough time for perspective on the group so anyway fast forward to like 2011 2012 and all of a sudden uh we start our name there were there was a retrospective on the mavericks done a retrospective on whiskey town and a retrospective on it was either sunvolt or wilco one of those uh, and in all three packagings, independent of one another, the Wagoneers were talked about as precursors for this. If you love, you know, you can't love Whiskey Town without the Wagoneers. You can't love the old 97s without the Wagoneers. The Mavericks without the Wagoneers. So all of a sudden, our name started appearing for the first time in a long time. That was great. And, and, and it was nice to, to be given that, uh, that credit and, and that, uh, recognition and that acknowledgement. And so we, we, Got back together for our our uh, induction into the Hall of Fame, and and right away the music was great, as great as it always was. And there's the magic that was there when our guitar player Brent Wilson and I, when we sang together. You know, it, we don't sound like brothers, but boy, we sound. I'll say this: we sound as close to brothers as anybody that's not. You know, we don't sound like the Louvens or the Averleys, but uh, but you know the Bee Gees. But by God, when it comes to just guys that weren't kin it's as good as anybody and uh right away it was that same magic and so we just we you know and and this time we we just have stayed together and continued to pick with one another and and it's it's uh it's been one of the greatest blessings of my life and just as incredibly uh, unforeseen you know we would never have reunited if not for the induction into the hall of fame so it was really really a cool deal now, I'd love to pivot and talk about your family's history in Texas. Let's. Can you tell me about how they first came here and just their everything, their yes. history, just all of it? Well, uh, yeah, my, my family, uh, my family, when they came to America in 1704 from County Down in Ireland, so they were Catholic. And first they settled in uh, South Carolina, and they, uh, uh, they were farmers there. And then during the American Revolution, they were part of the, uh, the, the the Southern Army in the in the American Revolution. They were they were at the battles of uh, Kings Mountain and Cowpens and uh, Cross Creek. Cross Creek wasn't a big battle, but they played a pivotal role in that. So anyway, so they were settling in the Carolinas. Then they uh, migrated west to Tennessee, and they'd settled in 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 Tennessee. And and then when the uh, First, it was the Spanish government, and then in 1822 and 23, when Mexico earned its independence from Spain, it became the Mexican government. Uh, they, they opened up immigration 
uh, to Americans. And, and the, uh, the Mexican government's plan, and it's, it's not the most noble of plans, but it's, a, it's on paper, it's a great plan. They, they went, look, the, the northernmost province in Mexico, Norte Mexico, is Texas. And it's rich in soil and land and water and game. And we've got to live there. It'd be fantastic. Except the, the Indians, so the Comanche were, were very uh, strong and uh, territorial in this part of Texas. And so uh, the, the Spanish government and then the very, very early Mexican government went, we don't have the resources to, to commit soldiers to this. The Americans have great reputations as Indian fighters. Let's invite them in. They'll kill off the Indians. And then, like 10 years later, what we'll do is we'll raise their taxes sky high and they'll go back to America. Problem solved. A couple things that were wrong with that. One, they didn't factor in that these Americans that came over, their grandparents, their grandfathers had the exact same situation under the British. Taxation without representation. And because Texas had no representation in the Mexican government. And so uh, when the Texans had successfully, they hadn't wiped out, but successfully uh, helped quell the Indian issue um, and the Mexicans began to uh, have punitive uh, tax policies, they decided to, the Americans decided to fight, you know. And also a lot of them had been in Texas for like 10 years. My family showed up in 1831. So um, the reason why my family came to Texas was to be a Mexican citizen uh, you had to be a Catholic. And so uh, many of the Catholics of Tennessee that had experienced maybe some type of bigotry or discrimination for being Catholics were able to come to Texas and uh, worship and live and love as they had uh, and actually have their faith celebrated as it had not been since they'd lived in Ireland. So they came here and they, my, my family loved Texas and they were very, very much involved in the uh, the early uh, Texas government, and when uh, when the the rebellion started, uh, when the Texas Revolution started, my my great 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 grandfather, a guy named Joel Allen Burdett, uh, fought in the Battle of Bejar in December of 1835, and that's when the Texians under Ben Milam uh, captured the Alamo. The reason why my family wasn't at the Alamo was. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, his enlistment expired December 31st of 1835. So he just went home. If it had been a six-month enlistment and not a three-month enlistment, I wouldn't be here. It's crazy, just those little things of history. So anyway, so uh, as the Texas Revolution heated up after Goliad and after the Alamo, um, my family wound up at the Battle of San Jacinto. Seven of us were at San Jacinto. My great-great-great-great-grandfather our patriarch, a guy named Jesse Burdett. And here, not too far from, like directly across 183 from the statesman's office, where the airport is, that was a, called Burdett's Prairie Plantation. And that was the land my family got after San Jacinto. And if you go up 183 north uh, towards the river, but still south of the river, if you make a left on Vargas Street, just right there by Callahan's General Store. I don't know if you take 183 home, but... Uh, there is something called Burdett's Prairie Cemetery, and that was just given a state marker in 2022. That was the uh, plantation's slave cemetery, and that is, uh, that is still there. And there are over a dozen, fewer than two dozen, uh, 
unmarked slave graves that were there from uh, uh, the slaves that were on uh, at the plantation. But there is a huge. It was one of it was one of Austin's first freedmen cemeteries because our patriarch uh, Jesse Burdett, my fourth great grandfather, shortly before his death in 1855, he emancipated all his slaves, and this was. Six years before the Civil War, it's a very like at the time it was very controversial for Travis County, but he had been Travis County's first or sorry second county commissioner. His son, my uncle, was Travis County's very first sheriff, and also the first sheriff to have to resign in disgrace because he beat his wife with a coal oil lamp. But uh, uh, he emancipated his slaves, and what that did was that immediately upon his death in 1855 created one of Travis County's largest uh, population of freedmen and one of the largest uh, population of freedmen in Central Texas. So that's why Burdett's Prairie Cemetery uh, is still a, a prominent cemetery in the African-American uh, community. Not, not so much like, not as much like Rosewood where there's hundreds and hundreds, but the Burdett Prairie Cemetery is. And anyway, so my family's been here. Let's see, we... Uh, th- three of us, two of us fought at Gettysburg. All of all these as Confederates. I mean, of course, we bet on the wrong horse in the Civil War. It was this Texas was a was a Confederate state. Two of us were at Gettysburg. One died at Shiloh. Um, and we've just been in Texas the whole time. And and the reason why we're not doing this interview up at my family's estate, of course, is we lost all that land to back taxes after the Civil War. So many. Southern families did, but anyway, it's 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 uh, it's always been very uh, fascinating to have been such a huge part of the birth of the the Republic of Texas and the state of Texas, and and you know, and I was raised to know my heritage, and and uh, you know, and it, it's interesting because these people were a product of their times, not ours, and it's important that like I've raised our our sons to know your heritage but we 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 uh we can't take any credit for their valor and bravery and nor should we be you know at all accept any blame for the mistakes they made or being products of their time and not ours and so uh uh it, it that that's a good place to land on it's like you know any valor they might have shown in battle i can't take as my own and any part of whether they were slave owners or, or how they acted towards women or, you know, anything like that. Uh, it's, it's an important distinction. That's what I'm trying to say. It's an important distinction to make that, uh, you know, yes, my family were Confederate soldiers. Yes, my family were slave owners. But my family was also uh, amongst the first in Travis County to emancipate. So neither one of them make me a good or bad person. But it's part of our history. It's important to know. As we come to the end of the interview here, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast as a tie-in to the name and actually ties into your history that we just talked about, so it's perfect. Um, And that question is, for you, what does it mean to be Texan? Oh, what a great question. Um, To me, it it means everything. Uh, I don't know if I would have ever... No... Uh, I doubt I would have ever tried to do what I do for a living if I if I wasn't a Texan. Um, I, I think I think being a Texan and being raised on Texas since the birth of it 
um, there is a uh, there's just this great thread in Texans that we there is an inherent confidence that I have found that Texans have that no other group of people have. And there's also this wonderful skepticism that borders on the disdain for authority of, 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 of any authority. And so if like I don't care what it is, if your boss or your your head of your government or the head of your country or anyone says something, a Texan will go, well, I'm not so sure about that. I don't care what it is. We will question authority. And therefore, when somebody says something's impossible or, you know, my family's never been in the music business before. I tried this career in music. I have an eighth grade education. I can't read or write music, you know. Go, well, yeah, but I want to do this. There was the greatest quote I've ever heard about Texas was uh, Maribel B. Lamar, our second president of the republic, and he was uh, head of the cavalry at uh, San Jacinto, young officer. And he's why we have Lamar Boulevard. He said, if you want to see something get done, tell a Texan he can't do it. That's it. So that, that's what it means uh, to me. And also, it's we're friendly people. I mean, we're, we're the friendliest fucking people you've ever met. Besides, of course, listening to your music, where can people find you online? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I'm on Instagram, just my name, Monty Warden. I'm on Facebook uh, with uh, Monty Warden and the Dangerous Few, the Wagoneers, and... Uh, my music is most easily found probably on YouTube or Spotify, you know. But come out to a show we play all over the world, you know. Come on out. Thank you. What a sweet thing to say. Yeah, and thank you so very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.